Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. This week, we look at relations between Russia and China. President Vladimir Putin's visit to Beijing took on added significance because of the deep divisions between Russia and the West caused by the Ukrainian crisis. Russia and China have now signed a landmark deal on gas supplies, as well as other agreements covering trade and arms sales. So is a new Russia-China axis emerging? Joining me to discuss this are two of my colleagues. James Blitz was once a correspondent in Moscow, and James King was FD bureau chief in Beijing. James Blitz first. There does seem to be big geopolitics at stake here. I mean, are we seeing Russia and China moving closer together in a way that is worrying to the United States? Yes, to some degree we are. I think if you look back over many decades, as you yourself reported in a blog this week, there's always been a strategic triangle in international relations between the US, China and Russia. And the basis of that triangle is that if two of those three can gang up, then the third often feels under pressure. And, of course, what you saw in the 1970s with Nixon's opening to China was that the U.S. and China came together, and that outmaneuvered and, to some degree, destabilized the situation with the then Soviet Union and left them, to some degree, diplomatically isolated. What you're seeing now is the U.S. being very much the one who is being excluded within the triangle. In other words, the U.S. has got very bad relations now, both with China on the one hand, because issues like cyber, espionage, and the Chinese role in East China Sea, and, of course, with Russia in particular because of what's happened in Ukraine. And as a result, with the U.S. excluded, you're seeing China and Russia coming together to a degree that you've not seen in the past. And this deal on gas supplies in many ways crystallizes that and symbolizes that. Now, the question I think we'd want to discuss is how deep that really is, whether this does signify a grand new opening or whether it's something rather more symbolic than real. So James King then, I mean, I can see what's in in it for Russia, particularly at this moment. It, It really helps to play the China card with America. But what's in it for China? Well, just to consider the deal for a minute, there is a lot in this for China. It's really a bit of a coup if it goes ahead. And I think we need to stress that. I mean, I I was reporting on this very deal 10 years ago in China. It's been around for a long time and it's always fallen through. So we, we need that caveat. But if it goes ahead and Russia does start to export 38 billion cubic meters of gas every year to China, this will be a big thing for China. First of all, it will mean that China China gets about just around 10% of its gas needs from Russia every year by the year 2020. It'll also mean that China has a cheaper source of gas because at the moment it's importing LNG. This gas from Russia will cost about 60% of the price of the LNG. This is very important in China because of the domestic imperative to reduce pollution. As we all know, gas is a key element of this. China wants to have its cars, trains and several other power sources powered by gas in the future much cleaner than the coal it currently relies on. So as a deal, it's very important. And geostrategically, as James was just saying, it's also really one in the eye for Washington. 
And do you think that China's been able to strike quite a good bargain on the price because Russia needs their market and needs their friendship? Well, that would certainly be my view. I mean, the price which is rumored, of course, China's keeping this as a state secret, but the price that is rumored to have been struck is significantly below the price that Russia currently sells gas to Europe and quite a long way below the punitive rate that Russia is now charging Ukraine for its gas. It's, of course, a great deal higher than the 98 uh, US dollars per thousand cubic meters that Russia charges its own citizens. So, But uh, from a China perspective, I think that they did manage to bargain the Russians down. So, James, from the Russian longer term perspective, if one looks beyond the need to play the China card now, does this mean, because as you suggested, the Russian-Chinese relationship's always sort of gone in waves. There is a kind of bedrock of suspicion there. And I've heard it said, for example, the Russians are worried about ultimately the security of Siberia, which is where all a lot of their energy is and not many people. And there's 1.2 billion Chinese on the other side of the border. Well, I think the first thing to say is that this does matter for Putin at this particular moment, just looking at it from the Russian perspective. Putin has come to this agreement as somebody who clearly has turned his back on the West and who has got a very difficult situation with the West in as much as Russia and Gazprom, the state-owned energy company, are still selling enormous quantities of gas to Europe. And the risk for the Russians is that the Europeans will turn around and are beginning to turn around and are saying, well, look, if Putin's going to behave like this in this revanchist manner in his own neighbourhood, then we are going to have to make ourselves less strategically reliant on Russian oil and gas than we have been in the past. Now, what Putin is able to say is, aha, you may want to go down that road, but don't think that by going down that road, you are going to be able to influence or contain my foreign policy, because I now have this other card that I am able to play, which is uh, gas sales to China. And in that sense, it is important for Putin at this particular moment to be able to show that. That said, I don't know to what extent this really is a a long-term strategic achievement by the Russians. At the end of the day, number one, uh, James has talked about them selling 38 billion cubic feet of gas to the Chinese per year. When this deal, if this deal is finally gets into operation at the end of this decade, that is still less than one quarter of what the Russians are selling to Europe. So it is not going to make up much of the gap if the Europeans strategically move away. And at the same time, Russia and China really cannot in any way be presented in the way the Russians perhaps would like as equal strategic partners on the global stage. At the end of the day, they're poles apart in terms of their stages of economic progress. The Chinese have 7% GDP growth per year. Russia is pretty much stagnant. If you look at the quality of uh, Russian exports to the Chinese, 10 years ago, Russian exports to China comprised only about 10% of those exports were made up of oil and oil-related products. Today, it's something like 70%. In other words, the Russians are not anymore selling the Chinese manufactured goods, weapons, high-tech equipment in the way they used to. In other words, net-net, this is an important symbolic achievement for Putin at this particular moment. But I'd be surprised, James, if if the Chinese were coming out of this looking at the Russians in any way as a kind of equal strategic partner. I think to some degree behind the scenes, they're still quite dismissive of the Russians. James, could you pick up that point? Are they secretly a bit dismissive of the Russians? And also, I'd be interested to end by discussing 
what you think China's attitude to the whole Ukrainian intervention and the grabbing of Crimea was, because I've had very different interpretations. Some saying, oh, the Chinese will be very discomforted by this because it's a violation of national sovereignty. Others saying, actually, they might be kind of encouraged by it because they have their own territorial disputes and they'd be interested to see whether you can get away with this kind of behaviour. Yes, I mean, I I think the the first question, uh, what do the Chinese think of the Russians? Always in Beijing, if you're talking privately with Chinese officials, there is a certain amount of suspicion of Russia. I mean, of course, they fought a war in the 1960s. And there's huge cultural differences. Chinese and Russians don't really see eye to eye as people. It's not really a, a kind of a friendship made in heaven. But I do think that a few big things have changed over the last few years. The first is that China increasingly sees Central Asia and what it calls its near abroad, you know, its northern border, historically terribly important for China, always the place where China suffered from invasions. That's why, of course, they built the Great Wall. But they see this area now as very important strategically. It's it's by no means a coincidence that when Xi Jinping took a delegation to Central Asia last year, he signed 50 billion US dollars worth of investment deals from China to, to that region, to the Central Asian region. And China also sees its rail links across Central Asia and Russia to Europe as a very important alternative way of getting its products out. It takes about 18 days to go by train from China now to Duisburg in Germany. This is a very important strategic route. Chinese call it the Iron Silk Road. So there has been a big shift in the way that China views its northern border and the territories uh, beyond it. And I I think that probably more than compensates for the kind of atavistic suspicion that Chinese have traditionally held Russians in. The other thing to be to be said to your question about Ukraine is that this appears to to me at least to be all part of the same piece. The lesson that China appears to have learned from Ukraine is that the US might be a paper tiger. And it's probably, to me, very revealing that only four days after Obama left his four-country trip of Asia, where he went to Japan and other allies in the region, claiming that the US would do everything possible to protect its allies in the region, and even saying that the US would uh, defend Japan against territorial incursions in its outlying islands, obviously intended to be uh, a message to China. Only four days after that trip took place, the Chinese were putting up a drilling rig 150 miles off the coast of Vietnam, which has then sparked this very, very tense altercation between China and Vietnam. And what has the US done? Pretty much nothing. Has it said anything strong to China about Vietnam? Not really. Will there be more of a US troop deployment to the region? Maybe there will, but it hasn't happened yet. So my sense is that at the moment, the Chinese may be thinking, the US is a bit of a paper tiger, and the pivot to Asia is a lot more talk than substance. James King, thank you very much for that. And thanks also to James Blitz here in the studio in London. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corian provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 